Welcome, market participants, to another Three Things in Credit. I'm Van Hesser, Chief Strategist at KBRA. Each week, we bring you three things impacting credit markets that we think you should know about. We're coming down the home stretch of 2021, and I'm told the podcast's approval rating is solidly ahead of Joe Biden's. Wait, Joe's is where? That's a fairly low bar to clear. Hmm. In any event, let's get started. This week, our three things are one, Inflation. It's back, but will it stay? Here is some much needed perspective. Two, GE's cautionary tale. Did investors overweight the benefits of diversification? And three, the Fed's semi annual report on risks to the financial system is out, and it's fairly benign. Should we be worried? All right, let's dig a bit deeper. Inflation. In perspective, the 48 point font story in the Wall Street Journal this week, of course, is CPI of 6.2%, a 31 year high. Inflation is an emotional issue impacting everyone. That's the first thing to consider when setting out to put inflation into perspective. Prices of shelter, gas, and food hit everyone, especially older folks on a fixed income, which then explains why we get histrionic reactions on the topic out of politicians and the media. But here's what's important regarding the latest outbreak of inflation. One, the surprise element, the magnitude of the jump, is predictable. Two, this well above target inflation is going to correct. And three, the histrionics is a function of poor Fed and White House messaging. Let's get past the headlines and dig into the issue a bit. So let's start with something we have often veered into on the podcast. What is normal? This is not normal. A 100-year health crisis that required unprecedented fiscal and monetary response to avoid what one observer characterized as a Dickensian outcome. The $5 trillion of stimulus, equal to roughly 25% of GDP, plus another $4.5 trillion in monetary accommodation by the Fed, more than filled the economic hole created by COVID. No part of this is normal. We are in uncharted waters. The result is people had a lot of money to spend on a limited number of things, principally goods. Demand for certain things has far exceeded supply. The result? Prices go up. That part is predictable. So we know directionally that is to be the case. But can we know with precision how far that jump is going to go? No. Now, we are correcting, we are returning to normal, and the journey probably won't be elegant. The effects of all that stimulus are fading away, but not before we have generated a 31-year high in inflation. But look at commodities. Across the board, prices are falling materially in many cases from peak levels. The exception is oil, which of course is always its own story. So let's leave that aside, even though we know that politicians can't. It's a lightning rod. But back to the data. Strip out rent components and auto-related items and the core CPI was up 2.5% today. So back to the correcting story. Remember all those excess savings built up with stimulus and not enough things to spend it on? Well, those savings are gone. Gone. We spoke about this last week. Savings are back to pre-pandemic levels. It has corrected. For all the policy heroics, did the Fed message this well? No. It did not define transitory appropriately. Instead of implying that supply pressure would be fixed in relatively short order, 
It should have said, we cannot be precise as to how quickly this will correct, but it may take a year or two because we are dealing with really large distortions. Now, the gotcha crowd is delighting in the fact that the Fed misunderstood how long the correction would take. But that petty win is no justification for a policy error, which would be to step in and quickly raise rates. Right when the economy is slowing, think about what that scenario would look like. Right at the time that factories all over the world are ramping up production as quickly as they can, the economy is slowing. Raising rates here is the very definition of a policy error. The result would be a powerful deflationary force unleashed in the second half of 2022. Again, none of this can be known with precision. The forces crashing into one another are simply too large. But one thing we did learn from the GFC, it is better to overshoot than undershoot. Don't start hiking until you can be sure the economy warrants it. All right, on our second GE's cautionary tale. General Electric's decision this week to break up what's left of itself into three pieces elicited wistful reactions from the financial press, who, in dramatically recounting the company's history, noted the passing of an era, the era of conglomerates. Fans of the podcast know that we have talked about GE's journey several times, highlighting the difficulty in managing a far-flung mix of disparate businesses. GE's journey over the past 20 years has not been a comfortable one for GE bondholders, who have had to endure restructuring after restructuring and unwanted surprise after unwanted surprise as the company's credit ratings have been downgraded from AAA to BBB. From KBRA's perspective, the experience of GE is a cautionary tale that challenges long-held conventional quote-unquote wisdom many credit analysts hold dear, namely the value of diversification. Yes, diversification spreads risk, but it also increases span of control risk, or the idea that diversification can increase the challenge of managing risk. Think about it, and GE is a case study in this. Different businesses brought together because of quote-unquote synergies from cost of capital improvement and elimination of duplicative headquarters functions, as well as implementation of operational best practices. But we also know that certain inefficiencies and unintended consequences are part of the equation. Misaligned incentives, political infighting, and bloated bureaucracies can lead to a dumbing down of institutional knowledge and conviction. Now back to that conventional thinking. Credit analysts often penalize firms for being monolines. All the firm's eggs in one basket. Buggy whip risk. The risk that what you do today is suddenly made obsolete. Now, those risks should be examined and tested thoroughly as part of any credit analysis. But sometimes being a so-called monoline is a good thing by virtue of the sharp strategic focus and execution that comes with the territory, resulting in sustainable competitive advantage. So the moral of this story is beware of labels and the tendency to paint business models with the same brush. Credit analysis is an idiosyncratic exercise. And we know that not all diversification is credit positive and not all monolines are inherently risky. All right, on to our third thing, the Fed's unwanted view of risk. The Fed is out with its semi-annual financial stability report, which reviews conditions affecting the stability of the financial system by analyzing vulnerabilities related to valuation pressures, borrowing by businesses and households, 
leverage in the financial sector, and funding risk. Now, taking these one by one, starting with asset valuations, the Fed has been paying close attention to house prices, noting that home price appreciation continues to outstrip increases in rent. Still, the Fed concludes that little evidence exists of deteriorating credit standards or highly leveraged investment activity in the housing market. Interestingly, the Fed made no mention of the role its super-accommodative monetary policy has played in asset inflation. But that's beside the point. On borrowing by businesses and households, the central bank observed that key measures of vulnerability from business debt, including debt-to-GDP, gross leverage, and interest coverage ratios, have largely returned to pre-pandemic levels, benefiting from continued earnings growth, low interest rates, and government support. It added that key measures of household vulnerability have also largely returned to pre-pandemic levels, as individuals have benefited from extensions in borrower relief programs, federal stimulus, which have contributed to high aggregate personal savings rates. The Fed did point out that the expiration of government support programs and uncertainty over the course of the pandemic may still pose significant risks to households. Concerns in the financial system are modest, with strong capitalization evident in both the bank and broker-dealer sectors. Above historic average leverage among life insurance companies and hedge funds, however, was highlighted. The Fed noted that ABS volumes are robust, which can drive financial risk into the system as risk retention rules are less stringent than bank regulatory requirements. Here, we disagree with the regulators. We believe growth in securitization markets diffuses risk away from banks, making the system more durable. Not bulletproof by any stretch, the GFC taught us that, but more durable than having that risk concentrated in relatively few banks. CLO fundamentals, such as average loan ratings or holdings of triple C rated loans, continue to improve recently but remained slightly worse than pre-pandemic levels. The Fed continues to watch bank lending to non-bank financial institutions. And finally, funding risk is low at domestic banks, although an acknowledgement that structural vulnerabilities persist in money market funds, mutual funds, and stablecoins. Now, exogenous factors that could amplify the effects of these risks include stresses in Chinese real estate and a sharp tightening of global financial conditions especially in highly indebted emerging markets. The Fed also adds cautionary words around inexperienced investors that have come into markets in a way that now worries the central bank. Risks cited most by the Fed's survey, which took place from August to mid-October, of market participants include persistent inflation slash monetary tightening, cited by 65% of respondents, vaccine-resistant variants, cited by 50%, and China regulatory-slash-property risks, cited by 45%. Now, taken together, this is a relatively benign report that seems to downplay the risks to sentiment of corrections of asset values that are stretched, if not extreme. We take comfort knowing that the risks have been diffused across investors globally, a key difference with the period leading up to the GFC, where risks were significantly concentrated in regulated banks. So there you have it. Three things in credit. One, inflation. 
Getting past the histrionics of the moment shows the right course of action to be one of patience in terms of raising rates. Two, GE's cautionary tale. From a credit perspective, diversification is not all it's cracked up to be. And three, the Fed's semi-annual report on risks to the financial system is appropriately, in our opinion, benign. As always, thanks for joining us. Don't forget to check in on kbra.com for our latest rating reports and research. See you next week.